This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. And welcome, welcome. You're here live with Dr. Jeff Warber, your host for the next 30 minutes here on Pet Life Radio. It's Ask the Best with Dr. Jeff, as well as my Instagram Live. Now, here for you, here for your pets. Want to get a hold of me? Very easy. Certainly a good old telephone call, toll free 877 385 8882. Once again, 877 385 8882. Better yet, reach me here live on Zoom on Pet Life Radio. Go to petliferadio.com, click on shows, scroll to Ask the Best with Dr. Jeff, and there'll be a Zoom link left for you there. We had a wonderful guest last week who was able to do it. It's really easy, even for idiots like me. It's really easy to do. So um, definitely you want to go for it. So um, anyway, I just have to laugh. I'm having conversations this morning. So last night was my 50th high school reunion. And you know, it's interesting and sad at the same time. I'm sure what's really sad is about at least 41. And, and from I heard even eight or nine more classmates are no longer with us. So, you know, it's, it's sad when you think about it, but at our age, I mean, it does happen. I saw like four people with canes, you know, for different reasons. But what you realize at this point, and I, I'd love anyone to chime in, please, and I'm not being obnoxious, some people age very gracefully. There are some people, look, except for obviously they're older, but look the same face, the smile, they look exactly the same. Some people practically unrecognizable. It's sad. And um, now, of course, there are some... Uh, Plastic surgery haven't gone on, I guess, with some. I don't know how to say that nicely, but it's true. Some people kind of look very differently, not bad or good, just very different. You know, like, you know, you look at like a Meg Ryan turn, you know, like where, oh my God, what did you do? Is it the same person? But this, I have to tell you, this is what I'm kind of laughing because this is coming from one of my friends and classmates who happens to be a woman. And so I get, you know, you have to be very careful with these things, but it's just observation. Certainly at a 10-year reunion, I think everybody looks about the same. I, there was no one or the other. Yeah, maybe some people gained some weight, but everybody looks about the same. At the 20 and 30 and even 40, I have to say, I think the women outdid the men. They look better. Some guys, you know, you let yourself go. It's a combination of genetics. It's a combination of lifestyle. But I tell you, and I was afraid to say it, but my friend Cindy agreed that she says this year at the 50th, the men got it. The men actually looked a little bit better. So, uh, you know, again, it, it's a lot of to genetics plays a huge role. Let me tell you. And but my click, okay, and most of my, in fact, I pulled out a picture from about thirty years ago of my group, and only one, my friend Kevin Sapin, was the only one not there. But all the other guys, Danny and Gordon and Corbin and the other other Jeff and Steve, you know, everybody looked really good, keeping themselves in shape. You know, these were all all these guys were athletes. We were, I was an athlete, and you know, yes, the hair is a little gray. Unfortunately, I I had a good dad, good genes, no gray. I have a little gray actually, but not a lot. And, you know, I didn't want to say it, but when, when my friend Cindy, she's here, hey, Sin, she even said, she goes, oh, my God, Jeff. And I didn't even say it. She said it to me. She goes, I think this year, she goes, I think you guys, the guys got it. I said, well, God, I didn't want to say anything, but yeah, I, I agree. So um, anyway, I would love you guys to chime in. I want to know anyone who's had even a 30th or 40th reunion. You're getting up there 50. I know it's pretty scary, but what did you think? I mean, uh, it's... <laughs> My sister's ready to quit while you're ahead. So anyway, I just, it would be great to know if others have had the same experience or is this just my little high school? But it's interesting to watch. Anyway, so 
animals. What can I say? I want to hear from you if there are any questions. By this point, we already have some questions. I know there are some uh, question goes. So <laughs> there goes the popularity. Yeah, you're right. Probably right, Cindy. But um, anyway, it's the truth. What can I tell you? I'm not the one that said it first. Remember that, Cindy. You said it first. Um, anyway, so it was um, a lot of stuff going on in the animal news. I wanted to share some stuff. Last week, we had so many great questions. I didn't get a chance to you know, see it all. But here it goes. So speaking of shape, this is interesting point of view for those of you that have pets. And this has been proven from psychologists, et cetera. But you know, people right, whose attitudes towards exercise are good affect their pet's health. Because what happens is when people exercise more, inevitably, they're going to do something with their pets. They're going to run more. They're going to dog. They're going to take that longer walk. They're going to go the extra five. And remember, you know, obesity is the number one nutritional disease affecting pets as well as people. And I noticed, and I've said this before, a vast majority of obese pets belong to people who themselves could lose a few. So, and it's become an issue because a lot of veterinarians are uncomfortable talking about obesity in front of a client who's clearly overweight. And I say, it doesn't bother me at all. I mean, first of all, there's no one that I know who is overweight and looks in the mirror and thinks they are thin and svelte. I mean, you know, when you're overweight, you're overweight and it may bother you, it may not bother you. You may be happy with it. Good feel. That's not a problem. The thing is, we, we need to do what's healthy for our pets as well. So those who, who get out there and exercise are going to have pets that are in better shape as well. So here's a wow. So I thought this was really good. There was a research done. I may have touched upon this um, last week because there were two stories, but Oregon State University, which is a veterinary school, it's one of the newer, relatively newer schools. They received a grant to develop a targeted antibody for canine cancer using camelid nano, it's they're called nanobodies, camelids from the camel family, nanobodies. So I guess if you get certain cells that are in their infant stages and transplant them into a different species, they will adapt to that species. And apparently there must be something with camelids who aren't really getting a lot of cancer. So they figured, ah, these, and there's certain like sharks, they say, don't have cancer. So this is interesting. So basically the treatment, it's much more gentler than radiation or chemo. It can be administered by subcutaneous injection. And when I, it's interesting, when I had one of my mentors from vet school, she was double boarded in internal medicine and oncology. And then just for fun, because I mean, isn't it fun to go to Stanford for a PhD in comparative oncology? Well, she did it. So I would say she's rather qualified. So when she came back, I had a chance to talk to her and I asked her, so, you know, by the way, my enjoyment, my love for oncology was because of her, because I was in her section when we were doing my rotations, I was in her oncology rotation and she's just great. But anyway, you know, I asked her, what did you learn the most? What was your takeaway? And first of all, she said, and this, I mean, sadly, it's true. She goes, the first thing I really learned is how little we know about cancer behavior. Second thing she says, the future in cancer treatment is going to be immunological. It's going to be getting the body's immune system to attack its own cancer. And they're doing that with some things they're doing with certain kind of uh, cancers where they're crumbling up cells like melanoma. Uh, they're trying to do it with some mast cells and injecting it back in to a patient where they're non-cancerogenic. They're not going to cause the cancer, okay? We call it oncogenic, but where it can build up immunity. And that's what needs to be done. We need to figure out how to get the body to attack itself. And that's kind of what's going on. So very important. Can you imagine having an injection that you give and it just, it trains the body to kill its own cancer? That would be really cool. So back to quality of life issues. And we talked about this, that early detection of heart disease is the key to quality of life. So that basically about 10% of dogs 
actually develop some form of heart disease. And early detection leads to a better prognosis in most cases. So basically, mitral valve disease is the most common heart condition. That's the left side of the heart. You hear murmur. That is very, very common. So, but the key, and it happens more in small dogs than large dogs. Bigger dogs can get something called cardiomyopathy. There are certain breeds, Doberman Pinchers, for example, are known for cardiomyopathy. Cats, cats get cardiomyopathy, especially those cats that weren't given enough taurine in their diets. And cats can't make their own taurine. Dogs can't make their own taurine. And then there's the whole stuff going on with grain-free foods and increase of cardiomyopathy in dogs that shouldn't be because dogs can make their own taurine. So what is going on with grain-free that might be blocking that ability of a dog to make their own taurine. Who knows? Anyway, as I say, if you're going to feed a grain-free, make sure they put taurine in it, almost like we do with cats. And this is what I say. And this is where things change in medicine, and we have to change along with them. And it's not easy, but we have to do. For example, years ago, when I started practicing, um, we, our, our uh, diagnosis of heart disease was based on x-ray, obviously clinical listening, hear a murmur, take an x-ray, you have dorsal tracheal elevation, you have a big heart, you have some lung issues, you're thinking of heart disease, okay, EKG, EKG was the gold standard, you an EKG and you could see the heart beating, you have the electrical um, conductivity throughout the heart, and then we make our decisions based on that, and but that's right now, guys, that is passe, now the best way to evaluate heart disease and the function and the effect this disease is having on the body is through echocardiography. We call it echocardiogram. And it's basically, it's an ultrasound of the heart where it's done usually by a veterinary cardiologist or a vet cardiology tech who's trained. And so what's important is that this has replacing the good old fashioned x-ray and EKG, ECG, EKG, same thing. So why? Because it is much more real. It's giving not just you're seeing the wall thickness. When you see a big heart on an x-ray, you can't tell how much of that is thickness of the wall? Is it super thin and just a huge chamber? We can't tell. But on ultrasound, you can tell. You can also tell, you can measure blood flow through an ultrasound, which you can't do on an x-ray and you can't do on an EKG. So you can have a murmur and you can have a murmur. And there are some murmurs that you hear them, but they're insignificant. They're, they're not affecting blood flow enough to cause a disease. And then others can be much smaller, like a, a grade two or grade three, instead of a grade four or five, and yet the two and three is worse at functionally wise. So it's very important. You have older dogs, when you hear a murmur, I know it's expensive and I'm trying to be practical. I'm, I wear the practical hat way more than the academic hat, but here's one where I have learned so much about a pet from an echocardiogram. And there are now outfits now, there are veterinary cardiologists. I know there are a couple of them in LA that will do it mobile. They can come to your practice or send a tech to your practice to actually do the echo. And then it puts on a thumb drive, it goes back to the doctor, the doctor evaluates, makes recommendations about treatment, and it's a much better way to diagnose and treat the problems we have in our older dogs and just dogs with heart murmurs. So, all right, we we'll get one more, then we're going to go for a break. And this is really cool, too. I like this one. Yeah, I, I always have the wows. I have the good. This is cool. All right. Humane Society in Pennsylvania has matched three dogs with students at St. Francis University for the entire semester. The students are fostering the dogs and learning to train, to socialize, and as part of their psychology curriculum. So they're psychology students, psychology majors, and part of their curriculum for three lucky students, they get to foster a dog and working on the training, on the behavior, because much, it's interesting, much of training and behavior and socializing that we see is really not too dissimilar from what we have to do with kids. 
And, you know, one of the biggest problems is the best time to socialize a pup is between eight and 18 weeks of age. Well, also, we don't get shots until eight, 12, and 16 weeks of age. And people are afraid to have their dogs mingle with other dogs until their vaccines are complete. And therein lies the problem. Because if you wait till the end of the vaccine series at 16 weeks, that only gives you two weeks for really heavy duty socialization. So my recommendation, and shoot me if you want, is yes, before the first shot, be extremely cautious. After the first vaccine, have people come by that you know, you know well, you know their pets are well cared for, well vaccinated, and have play dates. Your dog needs social. That's assuming you're not like my sister who now has four dogs. Well, this is, or me, has five dogs. So make plans for dogs. Now, after the second set of shots, 12 weeks, now you can go out in the neighborhood. You don't be afraid. Walk them on your street. I'm not talking about a dog park or public places or doggy daycare. No, 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 not, not, that's not until the end of the series. But just take a walk in your neighborhood. Go up a block up, a block back, maybe a block to the right, left, whatever. And of course, you're out there with your dog. Do it during the daytime and you can see if there's any poop. Don't let your dog sniff or whatever or fixate in an area, a patch of grass. That's common sense. All right. And then finally, when they're old enough, after 16 weeks, after the last shot, usually several days after, of course, to give the, chance, the shot a chance to work, then you can go ahead and start going to public places. But socialization is key. Let me tell you something. The fear of not vaccinating or fear of getting in touch or having your dog contact other dogs before the vaccine series is complete are the diseases. Parvo, distemper, um, again, I get it. Do you know that more dogs are dying because they're turned into shelters because of behavior problems than dogs dying of distemper or parvo? So you got to put that in perspective. Don't be so overly cautious about the disease thing if it's going to affect the dog's socialization. And because when that dog bites somebody or that dog gets into dog fights with every other dog it sees because it's poorly socialized, all right, that dog's not going to be staying in your house very long. And as we know, nationally, the odds are against a dog, especially now that they're getting overcrowded again. A lot of those COVID dogs are being brought back. There are more and more dogs at the shelters. Dogs are being put to sleep by the truckloads every day across the country. It's terrible. You used to say one every three seconds a dog is put to sleep in the United States. All right. And I'm talking shelter pets. So anyway, so be really careful. Try to socialize. And if you have any questions about that, please get a hold of me. And we are now going to break while I go scroll through. There was a couple of questions. We're going to come back afterwards. Todd has one about an Aussie with seizures. We'll get that after the break. Don't go away. We'll be back after these short messages. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs> Okay, welcome back. We're here live with Dr. Jeff Werber, your host on Pet Life Radio's Ask the Vets and Instagram Live. 
Um, we did have a question from our Instagram. Todd asked, hi, Doc, I have an Aussie with seizures. Had one last Sunday, so I started with a half a banana, a quarter in the morning, and the rest is for bedtime. Noticed a big change in him for the better. Tuesday, he goes to the vet. I would love to hear more about that. I'm not sure because the dog should have seizures for many reasons. If it's a young, healthy dog and out of the blue, it could be some hyperexcitability. In other words, not necessarily a problem. Have I ever advised or heard or saw scientific papers of a banana helping a seizure? No, but I've heard plenty of cases where dogs can have a seizure out of the blue and not ever again, or it is because some reproducible, highly stimulating event that stimulates the seizure center in the brain. And when that is not stimulated, they don't seize. So my point is, I'm not saying that bananas aren't an answer, but it wouldn't surprise me. It would surprise me less that it was just coincidental that you gave your dog a banana, a half and a half, and he didn't seizure. Because my feeling is that very likely you could have done nothing and he may not seize again. And, and you could do tons of things and dogs can still seize. It depends on really what the underlying problem is. If it's a young, otherwise young, middle-aged, healthy dog, and it doesn't happen again, or it happens another five, six months, epilepsy. One way to tell whether a seizure is because of a lesion or something going on in the brain is typically, and again, I always joke, the dogs didn't read the book, so they don't know what's supposed to happen. But when a dog has some sort of neurologic problem, okay, and are neurologically compromised, and they seize, that even when they're not seizing, something else will be off. They're just not right. You may not be able to pinpoint it, but you look at him, something's off. Whereas dogs with epilepsy, when they're not seizing, they are 100% normal. So if you have a young to middle-aged dog that seizes, but everything else is perfect, I would do nothing until the next seizure. If you're nervous, or you think it was maybe because of a toxic ingestion, you get a blood test. I classically, if the dog tests out fine, I don't even do a blood test the first time. Now, second time, I'll do a blood test. And depending on when that second time is, I may start immediately or seize until and if everything's okay with the blood, or I might still wait to the third. If that's those seizures are coming every four months, knowing that even with treatment, you'd be lucky to control the seizures to the point of every four months. So why treat a dog if their seizures are coming that infrequently? Or if you can identify what the inciting cause is and you can eliminate it, minimize it, and they stop seizing, again, you don't need treatment. So now if it's a much older dog, or a dog that's having problems, or is neurologically compromised, even without seizing, then I would say time for that MRI. Of course, rule out metabolic stuff first. You do a blood test, everything is okay. You may need to get a, a, either a spinal tap of some sort, ruling out encephalitis, meningitis, or you're going to need an MRI. So looking for like a lesion, something going on in the brain itself. And this is where, by the way, you're going to see a lot of differences in theory by the veterinarian. And here's mine. Take it or leave it. If you have a dog that's really old, we're talking 15, 16, starting to show neurologic deficits and, and is seizing, I always say if a result of a test is not going to change your approach, then don't do the test. And when you're looking at a test, it's $2,000, $3,000. So what? Now you know the dog has a brain lesion. All right. What are you going to do? You're going to treat it? Can you treat it? So my feeling is this is where the practical hat comes on. If I have a dog that's much older, and you're not going to do chemo. You're not going to do brain surgery. So put them on a medication that stop the seizing, treat symptomatically. I'd put them on steroids, probably, maybe an antibiotic, do something simpler like a, a spinal tap. And if the tap shows that there's inflammatory cells or abnormal cells, but no bacteria. But I'm not a big fan of recommending those huge expensive tests unless the test 
unless you're prepared to utilize the results of that test and go on and treat. So uh, I don't know, just my insanity. Um, here we go. Finally, a cat who had what I think was a seizure a few weeks ago seems to stop with phenobarb. I'm worried about her neurology appointment next week. She's 11 with kidney disease. Well, so there you go. Now, kidney disease, depending, interestingly, B, high BUN, blood urea nitrogen, which happens, it elevates with kidney disease. Actually, the ammonia can have a toxic component that can affect the brain. So it could be that that might be the inciting cause. If the phenobarbital is helping, which I hope it does, that's my first choice as well. You know, it's okay to give the medication, but I would say do the neurology appointment. And I don't know how bad the kidney disease is. If you want to send me the values, I'd be happy to take a look. You can send it to me here on Instagram. But you know, high BUN actually does have a, a neurologic effect on the brain, on the pet. So that is certainly possible. But if you're going to have a neuro appointment, and again, the same thing, you have to find out what is the plan of the neuro appointment? What are they going to do? Now, 11 for a cat is not ancient. I mean, many of us have cats that go to 16, 17, 18, 19. I had one last week, 21. So, you know, 11 is not ancient for many cats. But again, treat the kidney disease as best you can. Do the phenobarb for now. And when you uh, do the neuro appointment, uh, let's kind of see what they recommend and what they find. And also the question is, when your cat is not seizing, how is she behaving? Can you tell that there's anything wrong? Other, obviously in the kidneys, she might be drinking more, et cetera. But other than that, any other neurologic problem? And if the answer to that is no, then uh, just something to think about. 18 Dasequin. Wow, that's a lot of Dasequin. You know, it, it's, it is a supplement. And if it was just the chewable kind, I'd be more concerned about maybe vomiting for being stuffed. Maybe, uh, I mean, 6.8 pound Yorkie, that's a lot of um, uh, the stuff. It's not, it's not so much the dasiquin, okay? The glucosamine, the chondroitin, that doesn't bother me as much, but it's the base that it's in. If they ate it, that was probably the chewable kind. And uh, I don't know, if she's vomited, then that might be something to, to know. That's probably why. I'd be curious to know, it happened yesterday. How are we doing today? That's what I want to know. So uh, if you can, send me um, a, a, just a note. Let me know how we're doing. And let's see. That's a good last. Oh, last thing I found, she had thrown up a ton. Oh, so that's good. I think it's not so much the chondroitin or what's in the dasiquin because it's a supplement. I think it's the base. It's everything else that caused the vomiting. And uh, so when you call over there today, ah, the pancreatitis, that's the thing. So that's what I'm saying. There's just too much fat, too much meat in those chews. And that's probably what, uh, what happened, causing the pancreatitis. Yeah, take her out today and she can walk better. All right. So please let me know. You can reach me uh, here on Instagram. I'd be happy to uh, share that. So guys, be careful. Even with something that they get a hold of, it's not necessarily the chemical or in this case, the supplement. It is what it's in. And for a dog to eat that many, I would assume it was the chews. And they're made to be tasty. So they have a fat content. They have a lot of meat. And, and I think that's why this poor dog was vomiting, just overstuffed. I mean, my, I remember, I think it was Woody, my second Labrador, when we went to pick him up, he instigated. He's the bad guy. They knocked over a 50-pound bag of Purina dog chow that was in the garage with the dogs. And all the dogs, in fact, my friend Kevin, oh, he owned the mom, took picture of all the tails inside, literally inside the bag. So we brought him home and he was in the car. He was going, oh, oh, you could just see his stomach was this big. He puked, of course. And uh, it's just because he, uh, you know, ate too much, too much, too fast. Silly dog. So uh, anyway, if we have a couple minutes left, but we don't, but I'm going to take advantage of it anyway. Okay. Reducing cancer risk in dogs is a good story. You can't change genetics. 
And we've already learned that by talking early on about uh, my high school reunion. You can't change genetics. But lifestyle can affect overall maintaining a healthy weight. Exposure, sound familiar? Exposure, eliminating or trying to reduce exposure to environmental toxins like cigarette smoke, lawn chemicals, plants, solvents, etc. Spay and neutering can also decrease the risk of certain cancers. And of course, for white dogs or very short dogs that love chilling in the sun, they get skin cancer too. So make sure that you uh, use a sunblock on them as well. So September, by the way, September is an important week. It is a, first of all, Catalyst Council. It is Happy Cat Month. So make sure to keep your cats happy and healthy. I try every day because I have five to keep them happy and healthy. September is also Reasonable Dog Ownership Month. And there's six pillars you can go on. And uh, so just, and that's <laughs> that's a good one. And why not have another one? Sure, National Pet Preparedness Month. So busy, busy September. Um, I hope you're all taking advantage of all that. I think it is that time to say goodbye. So thanks for joining me here on Pet Life Radio's Ask the Best with Dr. Jeff on Instagram Live. Great to have you. We will be here next week, same time. And uh, for those of you going to our class picnic dinner today, I will see you later. And um, other than that, uh, those of you who have not had your 50-year reunions yet, you let me know how it was and, uh, and how many people you recognize off the bat and how many people you had to look at the name tag and see what they looked like in high school. We had on our name tags, we had our high school graduation pictures. And uh, so at least you say, oh, so that's who you are. Anyway, have a great week. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining me here. And um, God, take care of this I'll be hanging on here for just a second here on Instagram. Pet Life Radio. We'll see you next week. Mark, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Let's Talk Pets. Every week on demand. Only on PetLifeRadio.com.